This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm uh, Dave Novak. I'm the director of the Center for the Interdisciplinary Study of Music here, and uh, we're co-sponsoring the Beatles Revolution series. Thank you all for um, coming out tonight, and uh, it's great to have uh, a packed house here at the Pollock. We're very excited to welcome Alan Parsons here t- uh, tonight. Uh, he doesn't need that much introduction, but I'll do a little bit. He is a sound engineer, producer, a musician, and a songwriter, and a Santa Barbara native of many years. Uh, Alan began his career as a 19-year-old tape op at Abbey Road Studios, having been brought into work on the Let It Be sessions, uh, where he ran sound on the rooftop of the Apple Building for the famous final concert you've just seen in the film, and went on to work for George Martin for the Beatles' last recording sessions on the Abbey Road album. Uh, His work at that time launched a five-decade career so far. His many engineering credits have included The Hollies, Wings, Pilot, Ambrosia, Al Stewart, Jake Shimabukuro, and the game-changing Pink Floyd record Dark Side of the Moon, for which he received the first of 13 Grammy nominations for his sound production, and most recently for his immersive sound mixes. If that wasn't enough, he is, of course, the namesake of the Alan Parsons Project, which produced eight singles that broke into the Billboard Top 40 charts, along with several solo albums, the most recent of which, I understand, will be released later this year. So thanks so much for joining us tonight, and let's welcome Alan Parsons to the podcast. Well, let me start by asking about those days when you began as a tape-op, a lowly assistant engineer uh, at Abbey Road, and you were immediately shipped off to the Let It Be session, and somehow you soon found yourself up on the roof watching the it Beatles' was, last it was, show. It was January, right? It was January of 69. January 69. So I'd, I'd already been at Abbey Road three months by that time. Mm-hmm. I'd... Uh, I was actually 19 when I started at Abbey Road. And, uh, so I would have just, just turned... To, my birthday's in December, so I, I would have just turned 20 by the time... What that. was it like at that moment in your life, and can you talk about the situation? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there I was, uh, commissioned to show up at the uh, Apple Building. The, I, I'm actually amazed that there were no shots of, uh, during the film of the basement studio, because mm. a, you know, a lot of the... Quite, quite good footage took place down there. And in the original book, there's quite a few shots of the, of this, yes. of the downstairs studio. But um, I literally arrived, rang the bell, somebody let me in, just like those policemen rang the bell, um, <laughs> or knocked on the door expecting me in. And um, walked into this room and uh, almost, almost fainted. John, Paul, George, Ringo, Yoko Ono, George Martin, Glyn Johns, Linda Eastman... And I think uh, Heather, the, the little girl, Paul's little girl, might have been there, there as well. But uh, yeah. very timidly, I said, uh, "Hello, I'm Alan. I'm from Abbey Road. I've come to help out." You know, and, uh, they just needed somebody to uh, to operate the tape machine. There was no one there. They hadn't uh, taken any any staff on mm-hmm. for the studio. So, uh, and they also hadn't got any decent equipment. So um, Abbey Road was uh, commissioned to take two big old consoles uh, down there to, uh, to actually operate the studio because the, uh, the famous Magic Alex uh, had, uh, had installed this console that just did not work. 
And uh, he, he saw the future as being 16 tracks, so he put 16 speakers on the wall, um, which was not a, not a terribly good idea. And, uh, but uh, the recordings were actually really, really quite good sounding. I mean, uh, I'm not sure the, the great sound really reached the film soundtrack. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely room, but you know, the recordings are actually better than I think mm. they were able to get on, probably on an optical 16-millimeter soundtrack. Mm. But um, amazing times, of course. I mean, I was, I was always a Beatles fan, so uh, there I was, literally being a fly on the wall watching the Beatles record. Uh, so it was wonderful. And then the rooftop. So, of course, I promise you I was there on the roof, but <laughs> I was behind a camera. Um, if, if you were Paul, I was over there to the right, um, stuck behind a chimney from one direction and uh, behind a camera in the other direction, so. Uh, you don't see me, but there, there are shots in the in the book. Wearing a very smart uh, orange shirt with a striped jacket and a very thin, trendy black tie for the time. <laughs> it was um, de rigueur at the time to wear ties. Abbey Road policy was you had to wear a tie. Uh-huh. And so you went from that um, lab environment or the tie and coat environment of of Abbey Road into this chaotic uh, Abbey Road studios, which at the time. The Beatles were really trying to build their own kind of thing, a kind of collective project, very messy, a new kind of hippie era thing that they were doing. And it's very different than Abbey Road. What was it like walking in there and trying to deal with some of those uh, differences? Well, it's interesting that they had a studio um, for Let It Be, but they still chose to, uh, to come back to Abbey Road to make their final album. Mm. Um, it's a popular misconception that uh, that Let It Be was the last album. Uh, it was the the album before last, mm-hmm. and the two albums were released in in reverse order. But um, it, one of, one of the things that uh, I think would have come out uh, in the uh, Apple sessions is is how how depressed they were. They were re- they were really not enjoying themselves, mm-hmm. and I think that came through a little bit in the first half of the film. Um, and uh, Abbey Road became really uh, uh, an album of, of solo efforts. You know, the, George would come in to work on his songs, mm-hmm. John would come and work on his songs, Paul would come and work on his songs, and Ringo would show up every day and say, anybody need any help? And the <laughs> the uh, answer was usually, no thanks, Ringo, we'll, we'll manage fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, Barely a, barely a sight of George Martin in that, in that movie. Uh-huh. I mean, he appeared in a couple of shots, but it, on, on all the days that I was there, he was, he was very much in attendance, but mm. you don't see him. Why do you Just think like you don't see me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the cameras are very tightly focused on the Beatles, but there's yeah. so many people... Oh, well, there's so many close-ups in that film. I mean, yeah. cl- <laughs> <laughs> you know, literally the mouth, just the mouth yeah. of Paul McCartney <laughs> filling the screen. I don't think they do that these days. I think it's part of the thrill of this early um, emergence of rock documentary was that they could bring you backstage and into close proximity with these people who are already these you know iconic people and, and have them doing these ordinary things and goofing off and <laughs> sort of being there with them. And in a way, the, um, the movie you know, can be a bit of a slog for all that, that you're there you know, with them in the room can get very claustrophobic. They were obviously trying hard... To, uh, to ignore the cameras, but I don't think they ever really got away with it. Uh, possibly on the roof, because 
I mean, I was just saying to, to Dave, before, just as we were coming, uh, as we were getting mic'd up for, for this talk, um, the, the, the difference between the performances in, in Twickenham and mm. in, in the basement at Apple compared with the rooftop. Mm. I mean, suddenly they, suddenly they became the Beatles again, you know, when they, were, when they hit the rooftop. Mm. I think that's very, uh, it's very sad that they, they actually gave up performing. Yeah. And it was clear that that was going to be their last show. That's right, yeah. And I guess it was Paul's initial idea for this film to capture the band trying to get back to basics. In fact, they were supposed to be rehearsing songs for a possible return to live performance. And uh, they had left the stage, as, as many of you probably know, in 66 uh, to concentrate on studio productions. And uh, it was not to be. They were, this was, except for this um, final rooftop concert. So you were capturing a lot of live sessions and rehearsals for the in the course of filming and recording. In a way, the film is and the album are kind of unique for being both a film and a recording session at the same time. And all of this was eventually released. Yeah, my, my brief was just just to keep keep the tape rolling. Just uh, right. even if the tape ran out, put a new reel on. Don't wind it back. Put a new reel, a reel of tape on. So the only gaps in uh, in the audio are when reels were changed. Mm. But. Um, it really is. It really is such a, a tragedy that they didn't uh, include more footage of the of the what went on in the basement. Because Glyn Johns, the engineer, he didn't get a single shot either, um, as far as I could see. Uh, and he he was uh, he, he's very well known. I'm sure anybody in the business will know his work with the Who and countless others. Um, but he was uh, he'd been brought in. Perhaps to a little bit of uh, chagrin by Jeff Emmerich and uh, the Abbey Road, other Abbey Road engineers. He was a, a freelance engineer, which there were very few of mm. back then. But uh, then it became all the rage to, to uh, take on uh, independent engineers and uh, independent producers as well. Mm. And what was the move towards Glenn Johns for this particular project? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, just, I just met him for the first time um, on these sessions. And, uh, no, I was I was his his runner, his junior. You know? Yeah, were there any snags in in running uh, the the equipment up to the roof and and, and uh, th- this is amazing redemptive concert as you've seen, but there's so much uh, going on. It was done at incredibly short notice. I think it was only the night before that uh, that Paul made the suggestion. We, I think we get a better result if we were playing as a band, at, on a on a real stage, and they they just came up with the idea to run cables. From the basement up to the roof, I was, I was there pulling pulling cables up the sta- up the staircase, <laughs> and um, you probably noticed it was a very cold day. It was very very cold and windy. January and, in London, and uh, you may have noticed some of the microphones had pantyhose wrapped around them, to in an effort to uh, get rid of some of the wind noise. And, and Glenn had sent me out to a, a local uh, Marks and Spencer's shop around the corner to <laughs> to buy some pantyhose and. Uh, Gave me a ten bob note. Said, "Go and buy some pantyhose." And, uh, so I, I got to the shop, and this, I, I said, "I'd like some pantyhose, please." Uh, yes, sir. What size? Well, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so I think they probably thought I wanted to rob a bank, you know, stick it over. <laughs> or I was a crossdresser or something. Like <laughs> but weren't the mics so ugly in that in that film? They, they, they were just, you know, they just put foam around the edge and wrapped white, yeah. white tape around. Yeah. No, nobody thought about the visual content <laughs> at all, I don't think. 
Yeah, they're using like $50 microphones, you know, through the entire time, or what would be, you know, Unisphere, uh, very cheap mics, and, you know, you can see even... They're still only $100 yeah, now. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, cheap and cheerful. But uh, the, the vocal mics yeah. were actually uh, a little pricier. They were AKGs yeah. that uh, okay. Glenn favored at the time. Those little ones on the thin. The one on the thin stick, yeah. 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 So, you know, a lot of the film was shot at Twickenham Studios, which, and in order to accommodate the film crew, they decided to record on a soundstage rather than in a recording studio. Was it any different working as a sound engineer in that uh, environment, trying to make an album at the same I, time? I wasn't there in, at Twickenham. In Twickenham, yeah. yeah. Twickenham was all... Um, I think the, the sound was all literally captured by film guys yeah. rather than uh, any formal uh, console or mixing desk or, or anything. I can't say that for sure, but that was mm. my impression. Well, I know that there's just an enormous volume of bootlegs that came out of these sessions because they were just constantly running tape and they have all this uh, sound off of the acetates. And you just get all this rehearsal and all this, um, and all this stuff. And did you feel that they were just trying out material... Or where they just you know couldn't get it going. I, I think they were you know just like I said trying to get over the fact that there was a film crew there. I mean, yeah. they um, I think their previous sessions had all been very private affairs. Literally just just mm. themselves, George Martin, any musicians that got brought in. I think Billy Preston made an enormous difference to yeah. the to the proceedings. But uh, no, they 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 worked pretty pretty alone. Uh, it's well documented that they didn't uh, they didn't really approve of Yoko being there. Yeah, the other the other Beatles, and uh, I mean she kept quiet, but, uh, yeah. but she was a presence. You know. And uh, on Abbey Road, of course, is the famous double bed that was moved into the studio, so mm-hmm. so that Yoko could uh, send her assistant off to run errands. You know. And uh, but it. They didn't have sex in that bed. I mean, it was, it was as, certainly not when I was there, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, personally, I'm a huge fan of Yoko Ono, and you know, seeing her in the film, you know, I, I thought, what's everyone complaining about? She's just sitting there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you know, there's there's this there's this energy around Yoko Ono, and you just think, well, you know, really, you know, Yoko is is just. Uh, you know, she's part of the situation, and, and, and there's other people who are all around as well, so it's not, she's not the only one. And, you know, it's great to see. And the rooftop, uh, was, yeah. I mean, it's full of so many people, I had no idea who they were. I mean, I was looking at them, and <laughs> who, who are those guys? Yeah. And uh, the, 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 um, the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, did make some, uh, yeah. s- uh, some occasional appearances on the roof. He's, He's the guy with the cigar, he always had a cigar in his hand. <laughs> Um, I have a quote that I, that I was reading this afternoon from John about the recording for the sessions. And he said, uh, Paul had this idea that we were going to rehearse and then make the album. Of course, we're lazy. And we've been playing for 20 years. For sake, we're grown men. We're not going to sit around rehearsing. I'm not anyway. And we couldn't get into it. And we put down a few tracks and nobody was into it all. It was a dreadful, dreadful feeling in Twickenham Studio and being filmed all the time. I just wanted them to go away and we'd be there 8 in the morning. You can't make music at 8 in the morning or 10 or wherever it was in a strange place with people filming you and colored lights. So, you know, there's, and you can definitely feel that in the film. They're just fed up and they, you know, don't want to be doing it anymore. And the tension in the film is, you know, very instructive. You can see Paul trying to convince everyone to just make one more shot. It was interesting. I'd forgotten that um, there, were, there were a couple of songs at Twickenham that, that, that 
uh, were delayed until Abbey Road. O'Darlin yeah. was one of them, and yeah. uh, Maxwell. Maxwell Silverham, yeah. yeah. And uh, of course, the, you know, it was, it was, I thought it was interesting to hear a, mm-hmm. a very early version of those two songs. Mm. And, you know, you can hear uh, the beginning of All Things Must Pass at a point, um, you know, where they're just kind of trying to work on uh, a few of those chords, but it doesn't end up coming out. Well, I Mean Mine, are you talking about? Or? No, not I Mean Mine. You can hear All Things Must Pass a uh, little bit on the guitar, I, I think. Oh, the actual uh, song. The actual song, All Things oh, Must right. Pass. I, I think George had written it by then, but obviously was not comfortable. The famous scene where he says, you know, I'll play if you want me to yeah. play, I'll play whatever you want me to play, and I won't play at all if you don't I, want I, me to. I'm wondering if that was the five minutes before he actually walked out. <laughs> and apparently he did walk out for yeah. a week or something, yeah? yeah? yeah. They had to stop. Yeah, they, that happened more than once, apparently. Mm-hmm. George left the band. Yeah, and they had to go back and convince him uh, to return. And were you just on break for that time? Did you, did it, uh, you weren't part I, of those recordings, yeah? Well, yeah. like I said, the, the, the Abbey Road session, I mean... The get-back sessions were over uh, when the rooftop session was over. Huh. Um, but uh, the, the Abbey Road sessions, like I said, were, were just individual Beatles, mm-hmm. pretty much. And they obviously had to be there together for, for some of the time to get the, ba- the basic you know, bass, drums, guitar tracks recorded. But uh, once that was done, it became very much uh, separate efforts. Yeah. And so they would just come in, and you can hear on the recording how much... Uh, uh, it's a John song, or it's a you know, Paul song, or it's a George song. And who, was George Martin always there working with them each? He was there most of the time. I mean, George Martin had other commitments, of course. He, he had uh, other artists. He made comedy records still. He was uh, working with Cilla Black as well, and yeah. Matt Munro, and various uh, other, you know, rather, rather more middle-of-the-road artists that he had on his roster. But uh, he was always faithful to the Beatles, uh, always tried to be there. If he, if he didn't show up, then uh, Chris Thomas was always sent in to, to uh, deputize for him. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about some of the other recording crew that was working around that time, Jeff Emmerich and Ken Well, Scott? Jeff, uh, Jeff was not involved in, in, the roof, in the Get Back sessions at all, I don't think, although they did take him on as uh, chief engineer after that. Um, I think... Uh, Maybe sessions for Jackie Lomax with George and uh, James Taylor, possibly, even. I don't know. Um, they, they, they were all on the Apple label, so I right. assume that uh, they were probably recorded at, at Apple. Um, Nielsen, I think, was another guy that recorded uh, in that basement. Um, but, you know, like I said, my, my involvement at Apple was just literally a week-long thing. I mm-hmm. went but, once, uh, once I was down at Apple, it was back to Abbey Road, back to doing all the various sessions that I was assigned to there. Uh-huh. And um, I think it was that following summer sometime that, that the Abbey Road session started. So I'd, I'd sort of <laughs> had my groundwork, as it were, with, with the Beatles, so it wasn't quite such a shock as uh-huh. it was the first time. But, but they, were, they were good sessions generally, good, good, uh, much better atmosphere than Let It Be had, yeah. had been. But uh, it was clear that they didn't really enjoy each other's company very much. Mm-hmm. Even, even in the Abbey Road sessions, they, pretty much the, the historic days when they all showed up for the picture you know, on the crosswalk. Uh-huh. 
that was the that was the final day, and I think that might have been the last day that they were all together at, for anything. Don't quote me on that, but it certainly felt that way. <laughs> and I guess that there's a big difference in the way those records sound because of this as well, because there's all this multi-tracking and overdubbing and layering that's happening with Abbey Road. Yeah, Abbey Road um, <clears throat> used a transistor desk for the first time, as far as they were concerned. I mean, uh-huh. other EMI artists, Cliff Richard included, had, uh, had already um, tested it out. But, uh, but Abbey Road was, was an eight-track album. Mm-hmm. Um, as was Let It Be, but it wasn't recorded on an eight-track console. It was kind of um, patched together and with string and chewing gum on a four-track console. So, yeah. And you can really hear the, the, the way in which there's this raw energy to the stuff that ended up on Let It Be. But um, I wanted to mention the, the Phil Spector um, uh, mixes of this. The record that was eventually released as Let It Be... Uh, which was called Get Back at the time, had a pretty troubled life. They called in Phil Spector after the band had already called it quits to remix the tracks. And uh, the band had already rejected Glenn John's attempt to mix it, I think, twice or three times. And, you know, he had compiled uh, Get Back a few times and they just had rejected it. What's your take on the orchestral overdubs that were uh, later placed on the recordings? I know the Beatles were appalled to, uh, purportedly appalled to hear some of the... um, Flourishes orchestral flourishes on the long and winding road, and Paul McCartney's on record as saying uh, that he prefers the remix version on "Let It Be Naked" with all the erases, all the orchestral flourishes and choirs. And I think Glenn Johns uh, is quoted as saying, "Let It Be" was a great record before Phil Spector puked on it. <laughs> one of the um, one of the sad things that I remember about the uh, I mean, I, I I too love the naked version because mm. that's how it was when I was there, and that's how. I remember it, of course, <clears throat> but um, there was the uh, the big string solo on on uh, Long and Winding Road. Da, da, da. He's actually doing um, what we would have called a, a talking verse. It was, he, it was actually a, a bridge middle eight part, you know, and he was going, "Many times I've been alone, and many times <laughs> I've cried," you know? and you don't hear that because the strings are going. Um, I'm. I'm sort of in two minds about uh, what Phil Spector did with the the album. Uh, I mean, hey, it was a hit. You know, you can't you can't uh, knock the, the fact that he made it very uh, commercial, mm. and he did a, a much better version of "Let It Be" than than was on the original mm. uh, version. I think and that didn't have too much stuff on it. Mm-hmm. It was just a, essentially a, a better performance, better mix. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's so much material to work with that you had choices. All over the place to what songs that was that about. was part of the part of the process of course just finding and there were so many versions of every song I mean, there must have been t- 20 takes of get back to to sift through and well, all the songs at least at least 20 20 versions and it does seem like maybe the beatles weren't sure which of these songs were worth putting on or not there were there were some songs that were pretty uh, uh patched together mm-hmm. just by themselves but they love to uh, just mess around, you know, to Bessie Me Mucho and stuff like that. So. <laughs> but that was, that, was, that was what they did. They, they love to uh, just go off at a tangent sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many tangents. It's almost the first half of the film is them being <laughs> tangential. Right. And then they bring in Billy Preston. Do you think that was an attempt to heal some of this or to bring in a buffer? Could be. Could be. I, I don't know the circumstances uh, mm. that led to uh, Billy Preston being hired, but... Uh, he, you know, he, he, he was a, 
I think, a, you know, a real musician influence on, on the other four. Mm-hmm. I think he did a good job. I mean, the, the solo on Get Back is, is part, of the, part of the success, part of its success, I'm certain. No question, yeah. And his energy, you know, that he brought, obviously, to the, to the group. Um, so it was incredible. They did, they did have energy on the roof because it was so cold. I mean, I mean if, you, <laughs> if, you'd been able, if you were up there trying to play guitar on a cold day like that, it's pretty, pretty mm-hmm. tough. I mean, it, uh, your, your, fingers, your le- fingers of your left hand just freeze up. So they did very well. Yeah, there's a real joy in that, in that performance. In a way, um, watching the film can be a, a slog, and then you get to this last uh, moment, and you get to see how they can really come together. And in a way, knowing that Abbey Road follows this immediately, you know, it's, it's often considered you know, this um, last uh, great work. They, they obviously sense the, uh, the lack of polish on, on Get Back or on Let It Be. So they, want, they, they, they were very much uh, perfectionists for, mm-hmm. the, for, the final, for the final shout, as it were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now we're, we're in a moment where we're getting to hear a lot of the Beatles music anew with remixes and remasters, um, especially the, the uh, Giles Martin uh, remix that's just come out of uh, Sgt. Pepper's and, and, and the White Album. Um, this, this record uh, being released as the Let It Be Naked. So, we're, you know, in a way, we're, we're going... How, how far can we go with the Beatles? We were talking earlier. The Beatles, it's, it's incredible that the Beatles have such a lasting effect. We can pack the house and, you know, we, we can talk endlessly about the Beatles. And every year, there seems to be another view into this history. I think that's uh, record labels saying, oh, we found another three songs, let's put out another album. <laughs> um, so I think there are commercial uh, mm. reasons for, for, the, for the never-ending supply of, of, of uh, releases. But uh, mm. um, I, think, uh, I think Giles did a lovely job on, uh, on The Love Show in Vegas. Uh, anybody, anybody seen Love in Vegas? It's, I, I do recommend you see it. It's a, a very, very good mm representation of, uh, of the Beatles catalogue. Um, you probably already know uh, the sad and untimely death of Jeff Emmerich, who was the, uh, the principal engineer for the Beatles for many years, uh, did Sgt. Pepper and uh, pretty much everything up to um, Let It Be, and then he was brought back in again for Abbey Road. So um, he, ha- he had opinions about uh, some of the re-releases, uh, slightly negative opinions, but uh, I think it's probably more that uh, he was upset that he didn't get asked to be involved. Mm-hmm. I think he would have very much liked to have been involved in any reissues. Yeah, and he was responsible for so many of the great sounds that came out of that era of music. It would have yes, his uh, his memorial was in uh, Los Angeles earlier this week. Good chap, very clever guy, and a, very much a mentor in my case. Uh, how did he mentor you? He was ne- uh, never, uh, never against giving advice. You know, if you asked a question, he would answer it. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter how busy he was. Uh, so, I was, <laughs> I was always asking questions, I guess. But uh, no, he's a lovely guy. Did he teach so, you technical things? That uh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, he taught me. Uh, I mean. Taught me how to listen. You know, mm. I mean, being an engineer is is not just uh, how to how to get uh, a good sound, but how to how to actually decide what works balance wise. 
It's, everything is in balance mm -hmm. between instruments. You taught me a great deal about that. We were called balance engineers at Abbey Road. That, that's what you, you went uh, from uh, being a button pusher, which was a tape up, to being a balance engineer. Mm -hmm. And after that? Then you left to go independent, or you <laughs> became a producer, or both. I see. Which is what, exactly what I did. And Jeff didn't produce things very often, did he? He did, he did right. do a, a little bit of stuff. He, mm -hmm. did, he produced, I think, one of the Badfinger records. Bad and uh, Art Garfunkel he worked with uh -huh. a couple of times. Uh, yeah, we did a few, a few things as producer. Mm -hmm. But he's known for these incredible innovations on the Revolver record with limiters and compressors and some mm -hmm. of the um, phasing effects and so many of the things that we now take for granted as plug-ins or... or uh, or as analog uh, uh, guitar pedals, even. Yeah, it's all become rather rather easy now. You just, uh, if you want to sound, see what the vocal sounds like coming out of a Leslie cabinet, which is what it was on Tomorrow Never Knows, you just plug it in and <laughs> into a computer, and out it comes. So it's uh, we used to we used to fight for sounds back then. It's a little bit uh, a little bit too easy now. Mm. Well, you can buy the Abbey Road plugins. Uh, for a few hundred dollars, right? Yes, there's a, a recently released uh, Abbey Road chamber, which I'm, I'm very keen on, actually. I've been, mm -hmm. been using it on my new record. <laughs> Did you know I had a new record? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes it's, uh, it's coming out in April. Um, yeah. uh, I, built a, I built a studio at, uh, on my property in Santa Barbara, here, up, uh, up in the hills above, above uh, the Bacara. And my wife, who was sitting back there, was uh, very instrumental in the general design of the room. I mean, I did, she didn't design the acoustics and the, and the electronics, of course, but she was very, very important to the way the studio turned out. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud of it, very proud of the record. So yeah. It's coming out April 26th, I believe. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, it might be a good time for you to tell us the title. To, uh, the title is called The Secret, <laughs> and that it will remain. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let, then let me um, uh, backtrack a little bit and talk about your work uh, with the Alan Parsons Project. You just released the 35th anniversary edition of the Great Eye in the Sky record, and uh, it was nominated for a Grammy for the most immersive audio album for its surround mix. Um, so you met your collaborator, Eric Wolfson, at Abbey Road and recorded Eye in the Sky there as well. Can you um, talk about the changes in the recording world between something like the Beatles' Abbey Road and what you were doing with Eye in the Sky with uh, different kinds of sounds that were possible? When I first got to Abbey Road, it was, um, it was four-track consoles and mostly four-track recordings, but uh, the, uh, the, engineer, the technical engineers had, had let... Uh, let uh, the the uh, music engineers loose with the, with the eight track machine, but it, it was a hell of a business to to monitor anything and uh, to get all eight tracks actually being reproduced at once. Um, but uh, by the time the, uh, the the transistor console came along, it it, uh, it was they got it, they'd figured every, everything out and. Um, Soon after 8-track, of course, it came 16-track, then 24-track. Then you linked two 24-tracks together and uh, became 48-track, then came digital, then 
and hard disk. Now it's unlimited. You can have as, mm. as many tracks as you want. So I, I watched the growth of, uh, of technology over the years. Um, believe it or not, uh, Sgt. Pepper was a four-track album. It's almost impossible to believe you like that. Yeah. And uh, I'm rather, rather proud of the fact that Dark Side of the Moon was only 16-track. Okay. So uh, that was hard, hard work to, to, to get all those sounds onto 16 tracks. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And you only had monophonic synthesizers too, right? So if you wanted a chord, right. would you use three tracks for that or four That was tracks? the only way. Yeah. That was the only way. <laughs> all three synthesizers. Right. Being played by different people. And it's so full of sounds. So you must have learned how to fit things in. Um, and then it, it was later. just making, making choices, making balanced choices. I mean, uh, nowadays you'd probably record bass and drums across a dozen tracks. Mm. We put them on two tracks. And uh, shows the balance between the bass and, dr- and the drums. So it was, uh, you know, uh, just being confident about uh, what the final balance was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all the backing vocals would be recorded perhaps separately and then bounced across into the... Uh, to the master tape. That was that was part of the process, you know, just uh, balancing things up and sometimes going from uh, one 16 track to another 16 track in order to make more tracks available. Mm-hmm. But still, you only had 16 tracks in the end to make a master from. Right. And you moved. Um, that was your first lead project at Abbey Road with Dark Side of the Moon. Was um, I wouldn't say it was the very first. Uh, thing I did as as engineer. I mean, I, I did I did some Holly's singles. Yeah, right. I did. Uh, I can't remember the timing of uh, the air that I breathe, but uh, that that was the first hit that I had with the Hollies. Uh-huh. And um, lots of st- lots of stuff. I mean, the, the 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 nice thing about a studio like Abbey Road is that every day was different. I mean, everybody who was anybody wanted to record there, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was. Uh, Every day was different. You'd be doing a heavy rock band one day, a jazz band the next, a classical quartet the next, you know, all, all kinds of stuff going through that place. And so how did you end up in the position of doing Dark Side of the Moon with Pink Floyd? I'd uh, been the uh, tape-up for the previous album, Atom Heart Mother, so, uh, um, and then it came time to, to mix Atom Heart Mother and the engineer who'd done... All the other sessions was committed to something else. So they thought that they'd give me a chance to uh, be the engineer for the mix. And so that's what I did. And then presumably I did an okay job. Otherwise, it wouldn't have asked me to come back and do Dark Side of the Moon. So it really was a very much a company store kind of at, at Ivy Road at the time where they would just assign you to a project and say, well, you're going to do Dark Side of the Moon. Um, I think it was... More of a band decision than a than a staff. The band had it, had an involvement in it. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, interestingly, after after I'd done Dark Side of the Moon with them, uh, I also went on the road with them, did their live sound, which was great fun because they had this amazing uh, surround system wow. on the road as well. Um, then they offered me a job to be uh, permanently employed as their as their recording engineer and live sound engineer. And uh, I actually turned it down because I'd already had a couple of hits as a producer by that time. Mm. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's sad that, that uh, we, we only did one album, really only did one album together. 
because I think we were a good team. One incredible and the, album. And the album's still, <laughs> still getting played every day. Now. How, how, how many years was it the number one album on the oh, Billboard? Something like 20-something, 30-something years. Um, so, but it wasn't long after that that you, did, uh, that, you, that you did the Alan Parsons project that you started. It was soon after, yeah. I mean, the, the first, uh, I think the first sessions were in 75. Uh, the album came out in 76, Hells of Mystery and Imagination. Mm. And uh, that was sort of my attempt to do a, a Dark Side of the Moon without Pink Floyd. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so what was it like transitioning from being a, a, an engineer producer to doing your own, writing your own stuff and producing your own stuff? Well, well Eric was very uh, encouraging, mm-hmm. encouraging in that respect. That, uh, he uh, gave me the opportunity to write um, you know, with him and... I would also write w- without him, and mm. we would come together with our various ideas and uh, make melange arrangements of, of, of the bits and pieces that we'd come up with. Mm. But it worked very well uh, as, a, as a concept, and we all both went off to read Edgar Allan Poe stories again <laughs> since, for the first time since our childhood. And, you know, we came up with some, uh, some favorite stories and poems that, uh, that got, I, I picked up one slightly obscure poem called To One in Paradise. Mm. And uh, that became the final song on the album. And now you've, you're revisiting this, this music to do surround mixes. Is there, um, is, is there a new life that you can breathe into it with this uh, spatiality? It's, it's a lovely medium. Um, the sad thing is so few people have actually heard it. Uh, but it is like uh, the difference between going from mono to stereo, going... Going into surround is like going from stereo into a new, whole new dimension. Mm. And uh, there's this new medium called Dolby Atmos, which even gives you height information these days. But it's, it's a little too much for me to deal with for music. I think mm. it's fine for, for movies and stuff. But um, the sad thing is that uh, a lot of people have home theatres, you know, particularly people with a, a, few, a few bucks to spend. Mm. Um, but uh, it's really... It's really Home theatre seems to be for movies, not for music. Mm-hmm. And that's rather lamentable because uh, music is great in surround. And yeah. I, I, lo- I, love, I love working with the medium for music. Okay, great. Well, I have, I've had so many of my own questions answered. I think we should uh, probably move out to the people in the audience. Yeah. One quick technical question. When you say you're running tape, were you running a Nagra? No, it was a, an 8-track machine, a 3M 8-track machine. Uh-huh. The, the Nagras, the, the film people would have been running Nagras. Okay, and this was a four-track that you had? For, for Let It Be, it was eight-track. Eight. It was a 3M three, three eight-track machine, but the, the consoles were four-track, so that's what made it complicated. How many takes on the uh, guitar track that comes in before the final piano track on the end? How many takes did, that, uh, did they need? Did he need? <sighs> I, I think it was done in a, in a single afternoon, but uh, it's, it's all three guitar players. It's, it's Paul, John, and George. And they all had a little solo part to do, but the, the final record lasts longer than the tape did. Mm. So it had to be John solo, then chop, Paul solo, chop, George's solo, you know, so... Because they, you know, when they recorded the original track, there just weren't enough bars f- to record all those solos. So <laughs> they had to be done kind of separately. 
I think it was only one afternoon, as, as I remember. Yeah. <laughs> but George, George would... Uh, uh, my memory is that the solo on something took almost days <laughs> to get right. Hi, Alan. Uh, Hi. Big fan of your work. And uh, if you don't mind, I want to ask you something about uh, some of uh, your... Um, um, the Alan Parsons Project uh, um, work. Um, with the Beatles, it's uh, often very clear what, which one was a John song, which one was a Paul song, etc. Um, and you just gave us a little glimpse of uh, your, you know, your relationship, your working relationship with Eric Wolfson. Is there a good way to tell what song on an Alan Parsons project is? Alan's song, which one might be more Eric's? You, you can be pretty sure that if it's instrumental, it's mine. Okay. Uh, but uh, I would make occasional uh, contributions to, to all of Eric's songs as well. Hi, Alan. I wanted to know if we could talk a little bit I'm not over here. You. Where are you? I am over Put here. Your hand up. Yes, oh, there you are. Uh, about sort of I, about iRobot and about the approaching of the concept of that and just kind of going back to maybe a, when did Asimov come for you as you're starting to read it and when did it come together as a, as a concept album and how it grew out? Eric um, approached Isaac Asimov and um, was told by uh, Asimov, sorry, Eric, I've just sold the film rights to somebody, to uh, another entity, so we weren't able to actually base our album on, on, his, bo- on his books. Um, and uh, anybody who's actually read the, the, the trilogy will, will know that uh, it had these, uh, or, or who saw the movie, the... Uh, Slightly iffy movie with Will Smith in it, uh, <laughs> as far as I was concerned, anyway. Um, the, our, our philosophy for, the, uh, for robotics was very different to Asimov's. We, uh, we kind of took the view that uh, man, and machine would, uh, man and machine would ultimately uh, be in conflict with each other. And that was something that Asimov suggested would not be the case. I wanted to say, I was born in 94, right? And I have no idea what happened on the day before. The whole world could have been invented. And, like, the day right before. And I think that because of that, what really matters are, are like, what really kind of sticks are, are the recordings of things. And today it was mentioned that I had no idea about this, that the Beatles hadn't done a live performance for years. And I was reading about your, your project, the Alan Parsons Project, and uh, that you guys didn't play live for, like, a, like a decade. So I kind of want to hear your perspective on how like, a live performance kind of influences a recording or vice versa, or versa vice. We, um, we, when the Alan Parsons Project was born, we, we just made the decision that we were going to be a studio outfit, not, not a live outfit. Um, and that ultimately was, our, was a little bit of a downfall because uh, I think had we, had we put a live act together... We could have been as big as anybody. We could have been as big as Genesis or even Pink Floyd. But um, we we just decided, no, it's going to be a, a studio outfit. No, uh, no, no touring. No buses. No roadies. You know. But um, when uh, Eric and I had made our last album in uh, 1990, which was actually not not an Alan Parsons project, it was a a multi-artist thing called Freudiana. Not many people know about it because it was kind of buried. But um, soon after that, I teamed up with the uh, 
session guitarist, session drummer and, and keyboard player that had, that had played on most of the albums. And we made, a, made a, another album and when it was done we said, let's, let's take this on the road. And that was 1994, I think, when we finished that album. We toured it in 95, um, starting in Germany and then in America. That's where I met my wife. And uh, that was it. So, so Alan Parsons played live, but the Alan Parsons project did not. <laughs> Long time Pink Floyd fangirl here. Just curious about what uh, track on Dark Side of the Moon was hardest to get right sound-wise. Like, which took the most work to get the sound you wanted? That's a tough one. Pro- probably the... Probably the opening sequence, because that had so much, you know, all the voices, all the, mm. all the voices had to be synchronized to, the, uh, to what was coming up, and the, the, the final Claritory scream leading into the backwards chord, which leads into the forwards chord. That, that was quite a challenge. Um, speaking of Claritory, you probably heard that she, uh, she made a claim against the band for... Uh, for her contribution to it, and, um, and now is part of the composer's royalties. God bless her. Hi there. I had a question on a song off of iRobot that I found very inspirational. I had an old one of my dad's records that I listened to at one time, and that's what got me started on this whole thing, as well as, as well as a little question on Dark Side. Mostly it's the song Some Other Time, and the guitar tone off of that I found very, very inspirational as a guitar player myself, and I've been trying to emulate it since then. If you could offer any insight on how the sound of that song was achieved, particularly that section. The solo section? Hmm, interesting. Uh, it's a two-part, isn't it? It's, I, I'm just trying to remember it in my own mind. It was, um, I mean, Ian Benson, who was the guitar player on all the early albums, he, he just had a really, really good knack for... Uh, coming up with a great solo and then harmonizing with it. Um, one thing you may not know about that song is that there are two singers. One sings the verses, one sings the chorus, but they sound very, very similar. One is a boy and one is a girl. So uh, not many people know that. <laughs> okay, well, on behalf of Alan and myself, uh, thanks for coming and I hope we pass the audition. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.